Today we're continuing our sermon series entitled Graduation Speeches. Have you heard a graduation speech in the last few days? I've heard one or two. And today we're going to be talking as we bring this series to an end, we're going to be talking about the graduation speech uh, that Jesus gave. Perhaps one of the most pointed statements that our Lord and Savior gave us is recorded in the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. It's the speech that we sometimes call the Great Commission. It's a speech where Jesus not only identifies who He is, but who we are and what we are called to do and where we are heading. So let's turn in our Bibles today to Matthew's Gospel, the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the very end of this Gospel, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin with the 16th verse. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning as we begin, I want to break this graduation speech down for us. And let's look at the different parts of this speech by Jesus. First, he identifies himself by saying that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, Jesus is saying that the authority that I have was given to me by the Father, and the Father and I are one. This is a Christian mystery, of course, and one that we embrace fully, that Jesus was not only fully human, but fully divine. And we understand that in his identifying his own authority given to him by God, that puts him in that place of divine. And secondly, Jesus said to us, the church, to the disciples of old, yes, but it means the same to us today. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So Jesus' authority also gives him that that authority to commission us, the church. And he does so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the only place in the Bible that this Trinitarian formula is found is is here. 
And we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We celebrate Holy Communion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confirm our children. We ordain our pastors. We marry couples. All in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go therefore and baptize and teach in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then finally, Jesus said, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What Jesus is saying is that I am with you. Though I will not be with you physically forever, I will be with you in spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us throughout our lives. To the end of the age, it says, I'll be with you. This is a powerful promise of the not only the presence, but the power of the presence of Jesus. So here in this commission, we are given who we are as Christians, what we are called to do, our mission, where we are going, our vision. You know, I think we first recognize in this passage that God is a relational God. And God desires a relationship with those of all nations. You know, a few years ago, there was a movement in our seminaries to, to kind of take some of the masculine language out of that Trinitarian formula. And there was presented the creator, redeemer, sustainer. There, there's not a lot wrong with that except for it talks about what God does, creates, redeems, sustains, not the who of God. And it was that relational aspect of the Trinity that Jesus laid out that we never will lose. God is person, God in three persons, blessed Trinity we sing. And so God desires that personal relationship with us and that's what is said from the very beginning in this text. A man named William O'Brien writes about the mission, this commission being the DNA of the church. And he says, the church will know itself to exist for the sake of the mission of God. And the church must think more in terms of transformation than of confrontation. Amen. Speak God's language of love to all of God's children without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. O'Brien says that we must rejoice in hope, but we are also able to be patient in tribulation. That we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. This is our DNA, he says. We don't repay evil for evil. We seek to live peaceably with all persons. We visit the sick. We visit the prisoner. And the mission here at Lover's Lane is that we are loving all people into relationship with God and Jesus Christ. I was looking at um, uh, my files related to mission and I had quite a pack there but I did want to bring out one particular 
article that I had tucked away by the authors James F. Engel and William A. Dyerness, who wrote Changing the Mind of Missions, Where Have We Gone Wrong? So they remind us in this piece about how we as a church have kind of formed in the last 100 years or so. He said and reminds us that in the early decades of the 20th century, the American church tended toward two distinctly opposite poles. One branch, known as the liberals, held to social transformation as the central mission of the church. And unfortunately, the salvation of souls diminished in priority, thus giving way to what has been known as the social gospel, right? And the other branch, the fundamentalist, responded in opposite fashion, in reaction in essence, stressing the dangers of the world the comforts of a separated piety, the centrality of evangelism, and the expectation of the judgment at the end of time. Oz Guinness prophetically observes in his book, The Grave Digger File. That's a nice title, isn't it? Awful uplifting, The Grave Digger File. That As a result, the church has lost its impact by becoming privately engaging and socially irrelevant. Now let me say that again. His judgment of where the church has come in the past 100 years, and he would say increasingly so in some places, the church has lost its impact by becoming privately engaging but socially irrelevant. And both approaches, he said, are the great omission in response to the great commission. He said that what we have omitted is that understanding of the love of God that transforms, that we join forces with the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that transforms and transforms us morally and spiritually. Now this morning, I want to be somewhat testimonial, if I might. I want to say this morning that that, that this passage has caused me not only to see who Jesus is and who the church is called to be, but I hope that it will do for you what it's done for me. Who are we called to be? Who are you called to be? as a Christian, a part of the church. Do you need to reset mission and renew your understanding of the Great Commission? Is there a great omission happening with you as has happened with me from time to time? I want to say this morning that I am a Methodist evangelical Not a political or a moralistic evangelical. Not a right-wing evangelical or a left-wing evangelical if there is such a thing. 
but a Methodist evangelical. And I understand myself and my call and my mission as joining forces with God for the sake of the transformation of individuals and the world. Now I want to share with you a a personal pastoral bias that I've had with me throughout my ministry. It's not something that I said one day, now I'm going to do this and I did it, but it's something that has kind of evolved and it has to do with an understanding of my specific mission field apart from my church and my church work with my sheep, my congregation. In Houston, it was interfacing with children who had leukemia. Because I had had leukemia and I was treated, I became aware that there were so many children who were uh, dealing with that disease and in various phases of treatment. So I'd pick up my guitar and I'd go down on Saturdays oftentimes and would play for a group that would gather. Their families would be there. And of course at special holidays I'd do the same and would just interface with the children and with the families. And, And they knew who I was. They knew I was a pastor, but perhaps more importantly, they knew I was a leukemia survivor. And, and my, my mission was not, to, um, was not to preach to them, was not to share um, with them by word as much as by deed. And we sang fun, fun songs and, 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 and we, we enjoyed one another and I think there was a little joy that was in those times. <clears throat> But, but more than that, it was a statement of the church in the midst of a people who may or may not have been church people, but who definitely needed the love of Jesus Christ that I felt like I was called to give in my own way. Now in Tyler, now don't laugh, But I helped start the Rose Country Retriever Club. Now I had actually two Labrador Retrievers and and because I love training them and I met a few people and have you ever been around dog people? I mean real serious dog people? Maybe you are one. If you are, may I speak with you afterwards? I mean, because I trained uh, my Labrador Retrievers and I connected with others who did, it connected me to a little world within a world of people who really did enjoy that sort of thing. And so we formed the Rose Country Retriever Club. And I found myself going to these different tests and trials on Saturdays and being with people that uh, probably never would claim that they were rubbing shoulders with a preacher. They knew who I was. And they would mind their manners when they were around me. I was a real killjoy, I'm sure. They would curse a little less and drink a little less when the preacher was there. But you know what? When a mother died... Or when a child was wayward, guess who'd get the call? 
And I, and I saw that as part of my mission, to interface with people outside the church who may have been marginal believers or not believers at all, but, but they were looking for some sort of relationship, and maybe if I was that connection, that was my call. Now today, my extra specific mission field is interfacing with farmers. Now, I often go to Dallas Farmer's Market early in the morning on Friday while most of you are still asleep. And there I find these farmers who are coming from East Texas bringing their produce to town. And here I am in Dallas, and I'm buying their produce and taking it back to East Texas. And, and, and when my cover's blown, I mean, we get into all sorts of conversations. I, I, I was there Friday, 5 a.m. in the morning with a friend, and we met a farmer there, and I bought some beautiful broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage from him, and, and, and I asked him where he was from. Sure enough, I was trying to prove to my friend, this guy's from East Texas, yeah, I'm from Fruitvale. I, I knew where that was. That was close to Canton. We'd go nearly right through it on my way home. And, and I confessed, as I often do, that I, you know, I've got a little farm back in East Texas, and we've got a little farmer's market there. And, and, and then the conversation goes, and then eventually the, the farmer said, well, what on earth are you doing in Dallas? Well, here it goes. Well, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church. To which the farmer said, Methodists? And then you're just waiting. You don't know what to expect. <laughs> this could be really good or really bad. And then he paused for what seemed like a minute. And my friend and I were just standing there. And, and, and then he said, I like Methodists. My grandmother was a Methodist. He then said, Methodists talk a lot about God's love, don't they? And, and I think the Methodists I've known have, have, haven't been judgmental. And, and I like that. Well, I was kind of feeling pretty good. I said, well, I, I hope we're known for uplifting God's love and being loving. And then he told me about the last time he was in the church. It was a church of another denomination. He said, my wife is from Thailand. And she's a Buddhist, right? And, and we wanted to have a church wedding. He, he said, we'd had a civil wedding where, you know, they just make all those stamps and it... We wanted a church wedding, and we'd agreed that we would be, be married in, in the church. And so I, I went to my pastor, and I told him that we would like to be married in the church. And my pastor said, we don't do weddings for non-believers. And that's final. We don't need to talk about it anymore. And, and besides, 
the pastor said, you're unequally yoked. You know what I mean? We don't need to talk about it anymore. Then the farmer said, can you believe that? He said, I didn't think he, he liked the fact that my wife was a Buddhist, but he said, I think that he really didn't like the fact that my wife was, was racially different. He said, and, and that's the last time I've been in church. And I don't know if I'm ever going to go back again. And he said, I felt like I wanted to tell that farmer he could kiss mine. Well, that's where we'll end the story. But he went on. And I could hear the hurt and the longing and the love for God, but a disdain for the church. I was hearing the confessions of a church refugee. You know? Someone who felt he'd lost the church. He talked about his father, how his father was a deacon of that church. And ever since then, they haven't spoken very much. Relationships impacted. The church. Right in the middle of it. You know, in this diverse world, that's growing more so, we who are Christians of the mission to baptize and to teach the ways of Jesus need to reset our mission. If our mission isn't broad enough to join forces with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring God's love into the picture, God's acceptance, God's inclusivity, it doesn't make us weak. It makes us relevant. It makes us transformational. Because we're not the ones who ultimately do the transforming. It's God who does the transforming. We're the conduits of the love. And by the way, I, I hope it's all right. But I told him I knew a preacher in Dallas in a church where he could do his wedding. Kristen, we might have to get together on that. Now I want to turn to the final movement of the Great Commission. Jesus said, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, we often focus on this meaning that Jesus is present with us. And we usually don't move into that understanding of what does he mean by the end of the age. In the Nicene Creed, it gets at that too. It says, he will come again in glory to, ju to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. If Jesus is with us to the end of the age and Jesus is the, the judge, then I'm glad that he alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is my judge. 
I'm glad you're not my judge. And you should be glad I'm not your judge. Because we see things different, I think, than God sees things. Unless, of course, you are someone who sees things with unconditional love all the time for all people, then you're unique and godly. I'll take God as judge over anybody. And I'll trust God as judge over everybody. Now, I know that we Methodists don't talk much about God as judge. Shame on us. God judges me all the time. How about you? I know when the Holy Spirit knows I'm messing up because the Holy Spirit tells me I'm messing up. I know when I'm not loving and and God cares enough for me to remind me. And, And so that same sort of judgment will be with me at the end of time. I don't know what that looks like. We have in our minds what maybe the end looks like. That judgment when we stand before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, well, I've been thinking about this for some time. I've been thinking about when that time comes for me, at the end of the age, for me, and, and I'm judged. Lord, have mercy. But, but when my ministry is judged, I'm counting on God not saying. Why did you baptize those addicts who see themselves not as once addicts, but still addicts who could use drugs or alcohol or engage in thwarted sexual behavior again? Why, why did you baptize them? Now, I don't think God would say that. But if God did say that, I've worked up my answer. I'm going to say, you know, God, we're all sinners in recovery. And just as our recovering addict friends will tell us, That there's always that chance we might slip back. So we're always dependent on that higher power to to help us and to connect us with others who are in the same journey, who who will be there for us. And, And God, I believe that you wanted those people marked with the waters of your grace. With your first love. And that you and you alone want to be the judge of them. And they sincerely wanted a relationship with you. Now now I'm going to bet, if Methodists can bet, 
that God is not going to say, why did you baptize those ex-offenders or those former offenders, as you like to say, to make it sound nicer? They've lied and cheated and stolen. Some of them have murdered, raped, and robbed. Now, I don't think God's going to say that, but if God does, I've worked up my answer. God, I've seen them come to you broken and repentant. And so sorry for their acts against others, but they have understood those acts to ultimately be against you. And and God, you said to visit the prisoner. But what about when the prisoner gets out? Are we to say not welcome here? And if we haven't baptized them in the prison... When they get out and want to be baptized here, I've just said yes. Because they've sincerely wanted a relationship with you. Now, I'm going to count on God not saying, well, what about those African people in their tribal ways, far from Christian ways? And what about those deaf people? And, and others with special needs. You know what the Old Testament says about that? So it's not just about behavior, but in some cases it's about people who were born that way. I don't think God's going to question that. But some of my friends... Even in our denomination, have said, you're going to have to answer for baptizing people who are gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender because they're unrepentant sinners. Are y'all with me? You praying with me? I've thought about this too. I think if God were to question that, I'd have to say, God, the sheep of my flock, that congregation, is made up of people who want a relationship with you And want to be taught your ways. And we've got these signs on every entrance that you are welcome. We've said that to the world. And we don't qualify that you're welcome. They've said that they've wanted the love and the fellowship of the church. Our church here at Lover's Lane. Because they love the mission. And furthermore, God, I believe you know each and every one of them by name. And I believe they've all talked to you far more than they've talked to me if they've come to that place of wanting that relationship. 
And I know you've heard what I've heard about some of the turmoil and some of the struggles. And I've even heard the term, I feel like a church refugee. And God, I remember what you told us to tell those strangers who come into our midst. These are children of yours. And they were created by you, just as they are. Therefore, if they're created by you, it's really hard to say because of their sexual orientation that they're unrepentant sinners for who they are. Oh, sinners just like all of us, for sure. But that's what the waters of baptism are all about. God's grace. And I'm so thankful that the waters of baptism here at Lover's Lane are about us all getting into the waters or having the waters sprinkled on our head. This is figuratively speaking. But we're all under God's grace that we are not the judge one of another. We can trust judgment to God. For God said, go to all nations... Not judging them, but baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will do the rest. And you teach them. You teach them to obey everything that I have said. And what did Jesus teach? It can all be summed up in love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We can only teach that well. If we're living that out. Who are we? One diverse community. What do we do? We love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. It's right here on the cup. And where are we going? We're heading to the end of time. But we're heading there going to passionately engage the Bible. To uplift Jesus in worship and loving service. And to challenge in love that which divides. Amen.